0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, and we left off in verse 13 as we're going through the book of Hebrews chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up your word, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. We're thankful for who you are. We're thankful to be here. We ask that you would dispel despair and bring hope to our lives. You would provide encouragement that we could sink our spiritual teeth into these truths. Would you be glorified and honored in Jesus' name, amen. Despair so easily sneaks into our lives. Despair means the absence of hope or to feel hopeless. A variety of different circumstances can bring us to that place. A loss of a loved one very naturally brings us to a place of despair. Losing your job, being unemployed. I know some of you have been looking for work for years now, and that leads to a place of despair. Financial difficulty, relational difficulty. When there's rejection and the breakup of relationships, when there's conflict with children, when there's physical challenges... And every day you wake up and your your life is in pain. Sometimes it's not the big, you know, catastrophes that happen in our lives that bring despair. It's just simply daily life. It's the daily grind of life. It's getting your kids to school. It's going to school. It's getting to work. It's getting the laundry done. And it's like, is this ever going to end? I feel like I'm the screw and the screwdriver just keeps going to to my soul and I'm worn out. And I don't have this attitude of hope. And what we're going to study this morning is greater than despair. And as we've been traveling through Hebrews, as we see that Jesus is greater than, that he's greater than the law, he's greater than the high priests of the Old Testament, he's greater than the angels, he's greater than Moses, and what we find in these seven verses is Jesus is greater than despair. He is our hope, he brings hope in our lives. There's three key virtues that the New Testament focuses on. It's faith, hope, and love. This is one of the greatest sections in all of Scripture that deals with the topic of hope. It's my prayer for all of us that we could move to this attitude and this perspective of hope, that God would move in our lives in this way this morning. Let's do a quick review. Let's look at verse 11 and 12 of chapter 6, and then we'll jump right into verse 13. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. There's a hope that lasts until the end. So the author of Hebrews is going to now dig deep into the topic of hope. In verse 12, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those through faith and patience that inherit the promise. We're given the exhortation to imitate those that have received the inheritance. How did they inherit it? Through patience and faith, through faith and endurance. And then in verse 13, we see the example is Abraham. Abraham is hope's example. If you're taking notes, that's the first thing that we highlight this morning is hope's example. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself what was the promise that God gave to Abraham? What's being referred to here? It's out of Genesis chapter 12, where God speaks to Abraham, and he says, I want you to leave your family, get out of this land, go to a land that I will show you, and I will make your descendants into a great nation. I'll give you the land, and I'll make you a great nation. Can you imagine the conversation that would take place between Abram and Sarai? He goes home and says, hey babe, we're moving. We're moving away from all of the family. Well, where are we going? I don't know yet. God just told us to move. The knowing's in the going. Well, how will we know when we get there? God will speak to us. How's he going to speak to us? He's just going to show us. Amazing faith for them to step out upon that journey. It's how God works in our lives. A lot of times we want all the details. We want A to Z, and God just says, I want you to go. So Abraham goes, God gives him this promise, but there's one problem. The weeks, the months, the years go by, no children. No children, no children, no children, children, but yet there's this promise that God has given. Verse 14, saying, surely... Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. This is God's work that he's doing in Abraham's life. I'll bless you, I'll multiply, I'm swearing by myself because there's no one greater. When God made this promise to Abraham, he committed based on his own character and nature. There's no one superior to God. For God to use their name in his commitment, he simply commits by himself. And God's promises are grounded and rooted in his character. And the foundation of hope, the foundation of Abraham's hope was God said this. And because God said this, that I'm going to be a father, the father of many nations, I'm trusting it and I'm believing it, even though it makes no human sense and there's a lot of obstacles. Verse 15, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. To inherit God's promises, a lot of times it's patiently enduring. It's continuing to walk in faith and trust through difficulty, knowing that God will ultimately fulfill his word. Abraham was journeying towards the promise of Isaac being born. We're journeying towards the promise of going to heaven, of eternal life. What are some of the things that Abraham and Sarah went through in this journey? First, their very names provided a difficulty. Abram means exalted father. Could you be, imagine having that name when you're not a dad? Hey, exalted father. How's it going, exalted father? Would you please stop calling me exalted father? We can't have kids. Then God comes to him and says, well, your name is going to be Abraham. Abraham means father of a multitude. They still don't have any children. Could you imagine going to your family and friends saying, I know you call me Abram, but God wants you to call me Abraham. Hey, that's funny. That's funny stuff. You think you're going to be the father of the multitude? Sarai, her name is interesting. It means quarrelsome. How did she get that name? She was probably named something else to begin with, and then her parents were like, we just need to shoot straight. This girl's a fighter. She's just full-on, straight-up fighter. Let's just call her what she is. She's quarrelsome. So God comes in and says, well, her name's going to be Sarah, which means princess. Now, ladies, that's quite an upper grade to go from quarrelsome to princess, unless she was just a quarrelsome princess. (laughs) So just by the nature of their names, it provided some difficulty. In Genesis 13, God comes to Abraham and he says, look, this is your land. I want you to walk through it and see the length of it and the width of it. But once again there's still no children. So there's the revelation of the land, but they're still barren, and they're still childless. And then we get to Genesis 15, and it's this great victory in Abraham's life. Lot had been kidnapped. Abraham comes to the rescue. God provides. God comes and speaks to Abraham and says, I'm your exceeding great reward. Abraham, in his honesty with God, says, God, this is wonderful that you're my shield and you're my reward but I still don't have any kids. You keep reminding me of this process and this promise that I'm going to be the father of a great nation. I think someday there's going to be a a song. Father Abraham had many sons, but so far I'm not experiencing that. Is it going to be my servant that's going to be the heir of my household? And God once again reassures him of the promise that they would have children. And this is the example of hope that we find in Abraham as you continue to trust the word of God. Even when it's going against your experience. Then there's Genesis 16. And Genesis 16 is the fall in Abraham's life. Sarah has this great idea. She says, God keeps telling us that we're going to have children, but it's not happening. So why don't you take Hagar, my handmaiden, and have a relationship with her? Abraham says, great, I don't need to pray about that one. Sounds good to me. You know? He should have prayed about that, right? So he goes and has a relationship with Hagar. What were they trying to do? Trying to make God's promises happen in their own strength. That's not our job. We're to walk in faith. We're to trust the Lord. And the ramifications of that is Ishmael was born, who's the father of the Arab world. Isaac is the father of the nation of Israel. God, though, continued to stand by his promise to Abraham even though Abraham failed. Abraham continued to believe in the promise of God even though he failed. Brothers and sisters in Christ, that is probably when it's the hardest to believe is in our own failure. That God's promises are still true, even though that I've failed. Abraham's hope wasn't based in his own performance. Then Genesis 21 comes. It's the birth of Isaac. Can you imagine? hundred years old. Abraham's a hundred years old. Sarah's 90 years old. In their faith, they didn't even consider their own weakness. You know, this is impossible because we're beyond the age of having children, but God can do the impossible. But then we come to Genesis 22. God speaks to Abraham, says, I want you to take Isaac, and I want you to go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Abraham, in his faith, believed If he did kill his son, that God would raise him from the dead. How do we know that? Abraham spoke to his servants and said, The lad and I, my son and I, we're going to go and worship, and then we will come back to you. Here's Abraham lifting his knife to kill his son upon the altar, and God speaks this. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this. And have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashores. This is what's being referred to in Hebrews chapter 6. God swore by himself. Why is Abraham an example for us? Remember verse 12, we're to imitate those that have inherited the promises. So in Abraham's example, we're to endure in faith, we're to endure in patience, we're to continue to trust God and trust his timing that he'll fulfill his promises. We're to walk through this life with the confident expectation of eternal life. verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all disputes. Have you ever heard this? you know, I swear on my mother's grave that I'm going to do this. Oh, your mother's grave. Huh. You must be serious. You must be going to follow through on this. We're having a business dispute. I'm telling you the truth. How do I know that you're telling the truth? Well, I'll I'll swear on my, my mother's grave. And this is very common in the world's communication with each other. It's very common in in the ancient world. God tells us it should be different in the life of a believer that our yes should be yes and our no should be no. We shouldn't have to swear on anybody's grave for someone to take us seriously. But in terms of humanity, this is something that's done quite frequently, but it's not the case with God. We find a contrast with God. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. God wants the heirs of the promise. Now, who is that? That's us. We're the heirs of the promises of God. He wants to abundantly communicate to us. He wants us to be completely sure on this topic that the immutability of his counsel. Immutable means unchanging over time or unable to change. God's counsel does not change over time, nor does it have the ability to change. It's immutable. What do we know about this life? Everything can and will change. The only certainty is that everything changes. We can go through our lives knowing that nothing is certain. We think it's certain. We think our job's certain. We think our, our loved ones will always be with us. We take our health for granted. But reality is all of that can change in one moment but we know that God is unchangeable. Amen? And that's encouraging to us. His counsel, his word, it doesn't change. His promises, they don't change. His character doesn't change. The immutability of his counsel, and then it's confirmed by an oath. God's word is true. He didn't have to confirm his word with an oath. He doesn't have to swear by himself. He doesn't have to make an oath by himself but he chose to do that because he wanted it to be abundantly clear. Seeing, Abraham, I've spoken to you, I've given you my word, but now I've also given you my oath, and I'm standing behind that oath based upon my character. Church, I think that we're always going to be attacked on our trust in the promises of God. Satan loves to do this to us. It's so foundational, it's paramount, that we trust the character of God and his faithfulness to his word. How do we know the character of God? The cross brings it into focus. We look at Calvary. We go, God, you gave your son for me. I know that you're good. I know that you're going to be faithful to your promises. We come to verse 18, that by two immutable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie. What are the two immutable things? God's counsel and his oath. Those things aren't going to change. His word and his oath that he gives to us And it's impossible for God to lie. That's a great thing about the Lord. It's not even inside of his wheelhouse of ability. He's not going to lie to us. He's going to be faithful to his word. This is what it results in, that we might have a strong consolation. The second thing to consider is hope's confidence. From the scripture, hope does have a confidence. I hope that we understand the difference between the cultural view of hope and the biblical truth of hope. The biblical truth of hope is not this wish or whim, but the cultural is. For example, there's a big football game this afternoon where the Broncos are, are playing. And I happen to be a Broncos fan, and so I hope that they win. I hope that they beat the Colts. Now, how strong is that confidence? Well, I don't know. I grew up in the Northwest, and being in the Northwest... I rooted for the Seattle Seahawks. Ooh. (laughs) How did this transition take place in my life to be a Broncos fan? Well, it was a big revelation. It was a big epiphany. (laughs) Probably eight years ago, America the Beautiful Park downtown had just gotten built, and I took my kids to go play on the playground, and there was this sign that said that the Denver Broncos had helped pay for the play equipment there. And I thought, you know, the Seattle Seahawks are not building playgrounds for my kids. It's time to root for the orange and blue. (laughs) That's how it happened. But I have no idea if they're going to win today or not. I hope they win. And that's a lot of times how we use the word hope. I hope I get the job. I hope I get the promotion. I hope she'll say yes. And we fill in the blank. But the biblical truth of hope is the confident expectation of coming good. It's our confidence. It's our strong consolation. We have strong consolation based on the character of God. Eternal life, if you know Christ as your Savior, is not a wish or a whim. You're not, well, I hope that heaven is real from the cultural sense. Well, I hope that God has given me eternal life from the biblical sense. I know that heaven is real. I know that that's my eternal destination. You see the difference? It's powerful in our lives. It's hope's confidence. This leads right into the next thing. We have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This is hope's offer. This is something that we're to respond to. This is something that we're to do. To enter into the hope, we have to flee to the refuge. My heart has been gripped by all of the refugees that have fled outside of Syria and Iraq because of ISIS. I know you've probably seen it on the news as well. These families, these kids coming into other countries to simply provide refuge. They're refugees. There's desperation. And in a spiritual sense, we're all refugees. And we realize we've got to come to God. God has to be my refuge in this life. We know in life there's going to be trial and tribulation. You're going to go somewhere for refuge. You're going to seek something out for comfort. And nothing can provide the adequate and necessary comfort other than the Lord. He's the only one that can provide that refuge for us. And we find the people of God from Genesis to Revelation throughout church history, time current, have found God to be a faithful refuge. But we have to flee there. We have to go there. We have to take God on his offer. Psalms 46 verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What was going on in the psalmist's life to pin those words? Tragedy, heartbreak, confusion. But there was a real crucible. There was a real test. There was a real crushing. He says, God's our refuge. God's our strength. He's very present to help in time of trouble. Psalms 57 verse 1, be merciful to me O God, be merciful to me for my soul trusts in you and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed. A psalmist choosing to come to God for refuge. Psalms 90, Lord you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Proverbs 18 verse 10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous run to it and are safe. Are you running to it this morning? Are you running to the great refuge that we have in Christ our Savior? And then we have to lay hold of hope. What are some things that you lay hold of? You grab it. You say, man, I've got it. I'm not going to let this go. And we have to hold on to hope. This is also something that we find throughout Scriptures. The Scripture is pregnant with this theme of hope. Hope is used 151 times in Scripture. When I first came to the Lord and started to want to know where things were in the scriptures, I used something called a Strong's Concordance. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you have ever seen a Strong's Concordance? Okay, how many of you just unashamedly would say, I've never seen or heard of a Strong's Concordance? All right, there's a generational thing happening right here. And this is why. Because now you can go to BibleGateway.com, which I currently do. I did not get out my Strong's Concordance and I typed in, hope, and then here came 151 verses. Do you know how blessed you are to be able to do that? Do you know what a resource that 15 years ago that wasn't available? I mean, a Strong's Concordance, you could really hurt somebody with one of those. I mean, it's, it's practically a weapon, and you would open this thing up, and you, okay, hope, and so Jeremiah 17, verse 7 and 8, and, I, and I've got to go and, and look that up, And now with one click of a button, you can read through those 151 verses. Here's a couple of highlights of hope. For you are my hope, O Lord God. You are my trust from my youth. Psalm 71. Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hopes in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when he comes, but its leaf will be green. And will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. We have a choice of what we put our hope in, that what we put our expectation in. Hope is not just a feeling, it's not mystical, it's practical, and we choose daily what do we put our hope in. We find these scriptures that speak of the blessing of putting your expectation upon God. Think this through for just a moment. Is your hope in your spouse? Maybe God's blessed you with an amazing spouse. They have wonderful character. They treat you well. So a lot of your expectation in life is upon your spouse. I suggest to you that that's not the proper place for your hope. Your spouse was never created to be God in your life. And they will ultimately let you down. Because they're fallen, just like anybody else. Is your hope upon your kids? your expectation and your substance, your life is found in your children, once again, may I offer to you, your kids were never designed to be your hope. They were never designed to be your expectation. Ultimately, that's going to lead you to a place of emptiness. Is your expectation upon your job, upon your education. Put all this work into your education and into your future, and you feel that your future is certain because Of your education, because of your career path. Well, what happens if you lose your health? What happens if you get in a car accident and you no longer have that? All of a sudden, not only have you lost your job, but you've lost your hope. You see how easy it is? Unwillingly, unknowingly, we've put our hope in something other than Jesus Christ. I do it all of the time. It's so easy to do. And there's great wisdom. And us daily choosing, God, my hope is you. My expectation is you. I don't know what's gonna happen with my health. I don't know what's gonna happen with my family. I don't know what's gonna happen with my job, but I know what's gonna happen with you. You're the rock of all ages. You're unchanging. You're immutable. So I'm taking you up on your offer. You're my refuge and you're my hope. Not always easy to do, but important to do. And we look at verse 19 this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Hope's anchor. Notice that it says that our soul is anchored. The soul is what? The mind, the emotions, and the will. And our mind, our emotions, and our will can waver. They can be tossed. But God desires for them to be anchored. To be honest with you this morning, there's too many days in my life where I'm not living in the biblical attitude of hope. I'm somewhere else. And that's not God's will for my life. That's not God's intent for my life. God wants me to be anchored. He wants my mind and my emotions to be anchored in Him. Don't get me wrong. That doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be hard days. It's in the midst of this, we feel tethered to Jesus Christ. And when we don't feel it, we accept it by faith. We go, God, I'm trusting you in this truth and reality. When you think of the location of an anchor, we always think in the depths of the sea. For those that originally received the scriptures, they lived along the Mediterranean. Sailing was a big part of their life. This is an illustration they would know well. You put an anchor into the depths of the ocean, get it sunk real good, and hopefully it holds through the test of the storm. But what we'll find as we continue in this chapter is that our anchor is in heaven. It's anchored in heaven. It's anchored in Jesus, and he's passed through the veil. He's our priest that's seated at the right hand of the Father. You know what's so great about having an anchor in heaven? Is the trials of this life cannot conquer or defeat that anchor. So you lose your job, you still have eternal life. Christ is still living inside of you. Have physical challenges, which can be one of the greatest difficulties in life. You wake up every day in pain. You've got an anchor in heaven. You know that you're going to have a glorified body. You can just look at your body and say, someday... You're done, and I'm going to get a new body. I'm going to get a, a glorified body. You lose a loved one, so difficult. They know Christ as their Savior, and you have that eternal hope. You lose a loved one that doesn't know Christ, and the pain of that, and we look to heaven and go, Jesus, you're going to wipe away every tear. Why are there tears in heaven? You ever thought about that? Why are there tears that need to be wiped away? No doubt it's going to be because we're looking around for people we love, and they're not there. And that's going to be some intense pain. But Jesus is going to come and he's going to wipe away the tear. His comfort is even greater than that. And so you can begin to think through and go, you know what? My anchor is not touched by the economy. It's not touched by the difficulties of this life. It holds. My anchor holds. The early church went through intense persecution and they would hide in these caves that are called the catacombs. And they would write things on the walls. And one of the things they wrote was the fish to identify themselves as Christians, and we've come to know that symbol. But do you know the symbol that they used even more than that was the anchor? They would draw an anchor in those caves. It was to remind themselves in the midst of persecution and being martyred that heaven was their home, that Christ was real. What an awesome symbol. What an awesome reminder of God's faithfulness. Our hope's anchor, it's both sure and steadfast. This anchor is not going to move through the tests that we go through in our lives, which enters the presence behind the veil. As you study this chapter and these verses and you look closely, it's talking about hope. And now it, it links hope to a person and which enters the presence behind the veil. The hope is Jesus. He's entered in behind the veil with the tabernacle and the temple. It pointed to the throne room of God. So at the throne room of God, Jesus went behind the veil and he finished the work. And our hope is anchored in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He came, died, rose again, ascended, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's the location of our hope. That's the location of our anchor. The original readers of the book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians and they understood the ramifications of the veil. The temple veil separated the people from the Shekinah glory of God. It measured 60 by 30 feet and was 10 inches thick and took 100 priests to move the veil. And you thought folding your sheets was difficult. I mean, try to coordinate 100 guys to be able to to move this veil. My wife's left-handed, so when we're folding sheets, she's always going the wrong direction. (laughs) No, I'm going the wrong direction. Somebody's going the wrong direction. So these guys would move, move the veil. Although the priests could minister on the side of the veil where the table of showbread, the altar, and the incense were, only the high priest on the Day of Atonement could go behind the veil to the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God. They understood how significant the presence of God was. But when Jesus paid the price for our sins and cried, It is finished, the veil was rent from top to bottom, thereby declaring, Open house, any day, anyone, come on in. Those are the words of John Corson in his commentary on Hebrews. Our hope is anchored in heaven, but it's also accessed now. Because we can come to our high priest. We can come to the very Holy of Holies and ask for that grace and mercy in time of need. Our last verse this morning, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, hope's forerunner. What's a forerunner? A forerunner is someone who goes before you to prepare the way. I think of Lewis and Clark. Having grown up in Oregon, Lewis and Clark, a lot of writing about that, kind of a figure that we're thankful for. Why? In the Northwest, because without Lewis and Clark, all of those that traveled to establish the West would have had a difficult time. They prepared the way, they made the maps, they provided the information for the necessary journey, and Jesus not only prepared the way, but he is the way. He's the forerunner. So we're able to look at Christ's finished work, his ascension, his position on the throne. We go, there's no doubt if we're going to make it or not. Because Christ has prepared the way. Christ has gone before us. Christ has finished that work. He's the forerunner. And we're left with having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. We studied this a little bit in weeks prior. We'll study it more in chapter 7. It speaks to the fact that Jesus is an eternal priest. That he is continually interceding on our behalf before the Father. If you need some encouragement this morning, know this, Jesus is praying for you. That's encouraging to me. I'm sure it's encouraging to you as well. What have we seen this morning is that we have a hope that's outside of ourselves. Good news. What if scripture said you could be hopeful about the future based on your performance? Good job, you read your Bible this week, this morning. Good job, you prayed and fasted. Good job, you're serving. Good job this, good job that. It's kind of like the Boy Scouts. You got your little merit badges and so you can be hopeful about the future. That would be great reason for despair because we're going to fail. We continually fail. But the truth of what we've read is that God gives us a hope that's outside of ourselves. Here's what our hope is anchored in. It's anchored in the immutable character and promises of God. If you're going through despair this morning and discouragement, guess what? By faith... We have to hold on to the immutable character and promises of God. God, I feel terrible. I feel lousy. I feel like giving up, but I know your word. I know that you've promised eternal life. I know that you've promised a future and a hope. I know that you've promised to work all things together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purposes. And it's in those times of great difficulty that we anchor our hope in the character of God. Also, our hope is anchored in heaven, which we get to access continually. Thankfully, we don't have an anchor that's buried under the sea. We have an anchor that's in heaven. Finally, our hope is anchored in Jesus, who's behind the veil. He is our hope. He is our priest, who continually and internally ministers to us. This is the prayer of Paul in Romans 15. I want you to hear it. It's our prayer this morning. Now may the God of hope, That's how God describes himself. I am the God of hope. Fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to abound in hope, not simply have just a little bit of hope. I got to confess to you, as I study this scripture, this is for me. This is something I need to apply to my life. Based on the truth of what Scripture says, I don't have to go through my days with anything less than hope. I need to move there. I need to move to that point. I need more days where I adopt a a hopeful biblical mindset. I want to leave you with a poem by a man named Daniel B. Towner. And though his name is Towner, this poem is no downer. I can... Feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast. And the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm, I safely ride till the turning of the tide. And it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O Gale, on my bark so small and frail. By this grace, I shall not fail, for my anchor holds my anchor holds. Father, we thank you for the truth that our anchor holds. Our hope is in you. Our hope is in your character. Thank you that you don't change. You don't lie. Your promises are true. Thank you that eternal life is true. It's way more real than even this life. We lay hold of it by faith. We look at Abraham's example and we want to endure in patience, endure in faith and trusting your promises. We thank you that our anchor is in heaven. We pray that it would stable our soul, that we would find ourselves rooted in you. We flee to you as our refuge. We're refugees in your hands and in your care. We put our hope in you. We put our expectation in you. Our expectation is not in the political system. It's not in our spouses. It's not in our friends. It's not in our church. It's not in the economy. Jesus, you're our hope. Thank you that you're our high priest. And Jesus, would you minister to us only the way that you can? God, for those that are experiencing the depths of despair, of agony, of depression, or would you encourage, just as we've read in, in Romans 15, you're the God of hope. May you fill us with joy and peace in believing. May we abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray more of our days would be filled with hope. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.